Let's pray. Father, we depend on you completely, trust in you and in your spirit to lead us and teach us, to guide and direct, and not just to speak through me and not just to do what you say and promise your word will do, which is not return to you void, and it will accomplish the purpose for which you send it. We know that, but what we ask for and what we plead with you for is that your spirit would open hearts and minds to the truth of your word, that for those who don't know you and are not secure in a relationship with Jesus, whom is their only hope, that you would tear down walls that they put up to keep you out and you would humble hearts and minds to believe. And for those who do already believe, Lord, do not let us return to arrogance and think we already know and we've already got it figured out. So humble all of us in the presence of your word. This is you speaking. This is your word. This is your declaration. This is your voice that we hear today. And let us crumble in your presence so that you could fix us and change us and heal us and grow us and give us confidence in who we are in Christ and lead us forward in holiness so that you would be honored and glorified and we would be satisfied in you. And pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So over the past two weeks, we've discovered the nature of those who as Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, 1, depart from the faith. So we looked at those who depart from the faith. We spent uh, last week discussing apostasy or false converts that kind of reveal themselves as apostates, that they literally depart from the faith. And we looked at the, different, the, the two different types of apostates and how that works out, whether in the church or outside of the church or people leaving the church for, uh, as they abandon Christ. And uh, we looked at different biblical texts that show us that, and we went to Luke 8 to see Jesus describe the four seeds that are sown in his parable of the sower, and how uh, there are different types of seeds and what those seeds mean, and, and how it relates to what Paul's talking about in verse 1, about those who depart from the faith. And the week before that, we established uh, an important doctrine of eternal security, the perseverance of the saints, that once we're saved, we're always saved and secured and kept by Christ. And there's a reason for that. That foundational truth is massively important to understanding why Scripture says certain things about the apostates who abandon the truth, who depart from the faith. And so, after discovering all that, I'm still going to read from verse 1 today. But I'm just going to read it. We're not going to talk about it again. I'm just going to read it. We'll go into verse 2. But that gives you kind of a backdrop for what Paul now does. What we'll see today is false teaching. False teaching was, was very rampant in the first century. And it was different because I think false teaching today is far more pervasive. It's, there's way more false teaching going on today than there was in the first century. And that's primarily because of the outreach of the church. The church itself is scattered all over the world, whereas in the first century it was in a very, uh, very small area, you know, the Middle East and uh, Asia Minor and um, uh, uh, Macedonia. And so... The gospel hadn't spread worldwide, but it was because of the smallness of the spread of the gospel at the time, the false teaching that would take place in these churches would spread widely and quickly, and it was a lot more uh, obvious, 
and it was well known, and Paul would hear about it, and he'd get reports back, and then he'd write these letters to whether Timothy or Titus, or he'd write the letters to the Colossians or to the Ephesians, and he would address the false teaching that's going on in the church, and he would explain it. Why are they teaching a false doctrine? What are these people like? Who are they? What are they teaching? And then he corrects their teaching. And so this is really important because as a church, you know, I'll just say this, as a preacher and as a pastor, in order to address false teaching, you have to address the negative and wrong things that are taking place in churches. You have to address like, this is bad. This, these kind of people say these things. And these kinds of churches do these things. And this is wrong and that's bad. We have to identify them to address what the text is addressing. And I don't like being so negative. And I don't like bashing other people for whatever. Unless it is a clear and distinct reality in Scripture that tells me that I have to tell you these things. And I'll tell you why I have to tell you these things. Because verse 6 which we're not going to get to today, but we'll touch on next week. Paul tells Timothy, after all this teaching, through three chapters and a few verses in chapter 4, he says, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. That's Timothy. is supposed to do that as the pastor. So, as a pastor, it's my responsibility to bring forth and make you aware of some problems that exist so we can identify them and avoid them, and then I want to teach you, because Paul's going to do this, then Paul, what he does is instead of just sticking with the negative, he turns to a solution, and he says, there's a solution for this problem, though. It's not all negative. It's not just these are bad people, and this is why. It's these are bad people. This is why. This is why they do what they do, and this is how they do it, but here's a solution for the church. This is what the church should do about it, and this is what the church should be like in response to that false gospel that is taught. And so what's going on in Ephesus at the time, because Timothy's a pastor at Ephesus, and there's a false doctrine going around, there's false teaching that was deceiving the church, and it was a manipulation of God's goodness. And they would twist God's goodness, and these heretics taught that there are certain things that are essential to salvation. And these things that they are saying are essential to salvation are not essential to salvation, they are adding to Christ. Therefore, they are preaching a false gospel. And Paul tells us in Galatians 2.21 that, that, that if there is anything that needs to be added to Christ for salvation, then he says Christ died for no purpose. So Christ plus anything. Jesus plus anything equals salvation. You put anything in that blank, it's a false gospel. We are saved by faith in Christ alone. But as my wife shared with me this week, but faith is not alone. We're saved by faith alone, but faith is not alone. Because James tells us that what comes after faith is the sanctifying work of obedience that the Holy Spirit produces in us. And so Paul will sort of address that, but he's going to give us the how-to on that. And so these heretics in the first century in Ephesus, they're mutilating the gospel and they're not just mutilating the gospel because there's a lot of heretics and false teachers who don't know they're heretics and don't know they're false teachers. They just think they're teaching the truth and what they're teaching is a, a lie. But in this case, it's intentional. They're mutilating the gospel intentionally and in doing so, the church is being led astray and some are even, verse 1, departing from the faith. And what we'll see then is Paul's solution 
which is that through the word and through prayer, we gain a biblical God-honoring perspective on all that God provides for us. And in doing so, we would become satisfied in Christ and glorify God instead of chasing after false doctrines that are teaching us that there is no need to be satisfied. So what we're going to touch on today is a doctrine that we call Christian hedonism. The idea, I mean, you hear the word hedonism, you're like, that's evil. Because hedonism is this idea that all that matters is that, that we are, is pleasure, is, is, you know, human physical pleasure in any way, shape, or form to just be, just the, the pleasure, to enjoy the pleasures of the world as a hedonist. But Christian hedonism is the concept that God is most, and I'm, this is, I'm quoting John Piper here, this is his phrase he came up with years ago, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So, if me being most satisfied in him gives him his most glory in me, then what should my aim be? To be satisfied in him. And how do I get satisfied in him? Well, he is satisfaction. So all you need is him. And that's essentially the point, right? That if you get God, and the closer you get to God, and the more of God you have, more of Christ that you have, the, the better your gospel, the more you understand the gospel, the more you grow in your knowledge of who God is, then the better you know God. And the better you know God, the more satisfying that knowledge will become about your, who you understand God to be. He will please your soul and your life, regardless of your circumstances, good or bad circumstances, even in suffering. He will please and satisfy your life as he fills you with himself, and then he will become more glorified in you. That's kind of the idea of Christian hedonism, which is ultimately the opposite of what these heretics are teaching. They're trying to say, abstain from pleasure. And Paul's like, well, that would ruin the gospel. Because the good news, so the word gospel means good news, and the good news is that we get God, right? If we get God, we get pleasure, because God is the greatest pleasure and so that's the that's the heresy that paul is fighting and we'll see what he says here verses one through two i'm just reading uh, i'm just reading verse one so that verse two makes sense contextually he says now the spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons verse two through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So Paul now gives us clarity on who these deceitful spirits and demons are. They're not demons uh, expressing themselves in some sort of like, you know, uh, spiritual form or something. They are men who are either possessed by demons or oppressed and led by demons. And this text doesn't seem to indi indicate in any way that these are demon-possessed people, uh, but they're at least clearly, according to Paul, being taught and deceived by evil, demonic spirits and forces that are manipulating these men to deceive the church. And this kind of, this idea of deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, it's not, it's not like 
Satan worship. These aren't like people who are saying, hey, yeah, we're demons and we think you should worship Satan with us. They are pretending to be godly and they're twisting and skewing the true gospel of Christ. And these are demonic forces that are deceiving men and, and, and the men that they're deceiving in the church are the problem. Right? So what we see in verse 1 are people who are deceived by those who are teaching false doctrine. And in verse 2, we see those who are teaching the false doctrine. And ultimately in all this, those who are teaching the false doctrine are being led by demonic forces. And those demonic forces are breaking down the convictions of these men or these people, breaking down their convictions to produce in these people a weak conscience, which eventually, as it gets weaker and weaker, becomes, as Paul says here, a seared conscience. So think about, like, you know, how do we use the word searing to sear? Like, you think of food, right? Like searing a steak. When you sear a steak, you leave the meat on the burner long enough to produce a burn on the steak that's like a non-reversible burn. And once that steak is seared, the outside of the meat is darkened and what's inside is locked in. So for a steak, the juices are locked in and it makes it a delicious and juicy steak, right? But to sear your conscience is to lock in that which is being poured into you. And these demonic forces are pouring lies deception and manipulation into these men and then searing their consciences so that the truth cannot get out. Or as Paul says in Romans 1.18, by their unrighteousness they suppress the truth. So these liars, these manipulators, these false teachers, these heretics who are deceived by demons are infiltrating the church and teaching false doctrine and ultimately teaching a false gospel to deceive the church. And they know they're doing it with intentionality because Paul says that they are insincere, meaning these men are intentionally lying. Their insincerity is hypocrisy. Some of your virgins might even use the word hypocrisy. They themselves are aware that they are manipulating and lying. They teach one thing and do another and They'll be a hypocrite, and they don't care because their conscience is seared. And this intentional deception is to destroy the church. But they feel and sense no conviction from the Holy Spirit. Well, they don't have the Holy Spirit. So the truth of God's word doesn't sink into their heart, and it can't sink into their heart because they have blocked off the heart. They've seared their heart. They have, like, cauterized their heart so the. the Truth can't get in. And they can't hear God and they can't hear the truth and they can't hear the Spirit. So they don't know what's right and they don't know what's wrong because to know what's right and to know what's wrong, you need a conscience. But their conscience is seared. And so their, their seared conscience, because of that, they can't hear the truth. Or if they do hear the truth, like I said, Romans 1.18, they suppress that truth or they suppress the activity of God in their lives so they become deaf to the truth. And God talks about what the result of that is in Romans 1.28. He says that when this happens, God gives them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, 
They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So just notice that. Like, what Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 4.2 is that there is an insincerity in these liars. They know they're lying. They're, they're not sincere about their deception. They don't think that, I mean, they're sincere about their deception. They're not sincere about what they're teaching. They don't think that they're teaching a truth they are deceiving intentionally. And so they know that what they're doing is wrong. And they know, according to Romans 1.32 that I just read, they know God's decrees and that those who practice such things deserve to die. They know they're wrong. They know that for their wrong they deserve to die, just like Satan knows he's wrong. And he knows that for his wrong he deserves to die. But, Paul says in verse 32, they still not only do it, but give approval to those who make a practice of it. So they not only continue to do it, despite knowing it will incur the, God's judgment and wrath on them, but they want to bring others in on it. That's the condition of the debased mind that is, has a, a seared conscience, which is what's happening in Ephesus, and that's what Paul is dealing with. And so this is the ultimate end. What I just read in Romans 1, 28-32, that is the ultimate end of those who make God their enemy. There's a lot of unbelievers in this world. And most of them are, you know, seem blindly ignorant to their need for Christ. But then there are these types of people who intentionally manipulate and deceive the church in order to fulfill their own selfish desires as they themselves are manipulated by demons. So they're just pawns thinking that they got some master plan to, to gain some something, whether it's notoriety, uh, whether it's praise, whether it's money, whether it's just a following, which in the first century, gaining a following was like the thing to do. Rabbis would gain following. So Jewish religion and culture was this concept of following. And, and, and Greek philosophers would have followers. And then the church starts. And then what does the church do in Corinth? They start following Paul or or, or Peter, or Apollos, and, and Paul has to write them letters and say, stop doing that. Stop trying to follow these men. You're not a Paulite or a Peterite or whatever. We're Christians. We follow Christ and him alone. And, and so this, the, these uh, false teachers, it would be very normal for them to desire, as one of their greatest desires, to teach something that opposes what the church is already teaching. So to pull people away from following Paul and following Christ and following Timothy and instead following them so they too would gain a following. But they're still pawns. Because who really wants to be followed in that scenario? Who wants to be worshipped? Who wants to be like the Most High? Satan. That's why he got kicked out of the presence of God. Because he said, I want to be like the Most High. In fact, he's like, I am like the Most High. I'm better than the Most High. And God was like, no, you're not. Flicks him off into the earth, right? 
and just sends him to earth and he's going to, you know, and will eventually face his ultimate demise. But in the meantime, he wants to drag as many bodies with him, as many souls with him as he can, and he wants to deceive you. And in the process, he wants to be, like, exonerated for his wickedness and, like, proven to be right. I am, like, the most. I am greater than God. I have more followers than you do on this earth, which is probably true. I mean, if we're talking about numbers... You know, who's winning on earth right now, God or Satan? Satan. If we're talking numbers, Satan's winning. Jesus says in John 8 that they don't know God the Father because they don't know Christ. And if they don't know Christ and they therefore don't know God, he says, Satan is your father. There are millions, if well, billions of children of Satan in this world and they, and, and they would never say of themselves, I follow Satan. I follow demons. I follow the teachings of worldliness. They would never say that. Why would they never say that? Because they don't believe it. Because Satan is so manipulative, he doesn't want them to see it, so he doesn't let them know it. And he said, as, as 1 Corinthians tells us, or 2 Corinthians 4 teaches us, that that is Satan blinding the eyes of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the truth of the glory of God in Christ. And so... It is very manipulative of Satan to drag people to hell with him. And that's his goal. And if, if he can garner as many people as he, as, he, you know, as he has on earth, I mean, he would look at God right now and say, I got more followers than you do. And God's like, yeah, I know. That's part of my plan. Narrow is the gate and few find it. This is my plan. Satan thinks he's winning. And even if he knows he doesn't win... He still wants to be worshipped. He, he knew when Jesus showed up on earth that he was like, I'm in trouble. <laughs> like, they, they know that, that Jesus was bad news for them. And what does Satan do with Jesus in the wilderness? Still goes to him, still knows he's going to lose, and still tries to tempt Jesus. And what, is the, what does Satan want from Jesus? He wants to be worshipped by Jesus. He wants God to submit to him. And says, look at all the, all the kingdoms of the world. I will give it all to you if you just bow down and worship me. And Jesus is like, worship God only. And he responds with scripture. Because Satan still has the audacity to stand in the face of God himself. And say, worship me. So what do you think he's going to do to you? You're not God. He, it's way, he has a much easier time manipulating us than manipulating Jesus. He couldn't manipulate Christ. But he can manipulate us. And this is why it's so important that we are constantly filled with the Spirit so that in being filled with the Spirit, we would have the power to discern good from evil. So, because we might not be God, but we have God in us in Christ. And we have, as Paul says in Philippians 2, the mind of Christ that's in us that allows us to see the reality of the world that we're in, allows us to see what is good and what is evil. What does the word say? What does the world say? And we can discern, and with that discernment, we can recognize this is evil. That's a false gospel. This is bad teaching. This isn't healthy. This isn't good. This is righteous. This is unrighteous. And with that power of discernment that comes in the, in the Holy Spirit, we're then able to recognize this is a demonic teaching, which is what Paul finally recognizes when he writes this letter to Timothy. 
So it is these evil perpetuators who are leading many astray, and it is through their manipulation that the apostates are eventually revealed as false converts. And as we looked at those different kinds of apostates the last few weeks, those false converts that exist, like according to Jesus in Luke 8, when we looked at those, those apostates are being led away from the truth by these false teachers who are demonically led. So we've already established that, but now I say that again to say this. Satan is the problem, not people. People are not the problem. Satan is the enemy. People are not the enemy. Paul tells us in Ephesians 6.12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There's a spiritual realm that exists around us, within us. And to put it in a time, to put the spiritual realm in like time and space, the way we do our physical realm, doesn't really make sense, but it's the only way we can really interpret it or understand it as finite human beings who live in a physical world. But we're aware of the spiritual world because we have a spirit and a soul within us. And Ecclesiastes 3.11 tells us that God has put eternity in the hearts of humans. Everybody has a concept of the spiritual realm, a real, a real awareness that there's something beyond this. Even those who conclude there's nothing beyond this in order to believe that they have to suppress the truth, Romans 1.18. And this is why a lot of people struggle with the question, what comes after this life. The only reason that question matters is because God has placed a concept, a reality, an understanding of life going on forever and eternity after this physical life and this physical realm that is spiritual and physical. And so it is in that spiritual realm where the enemy works and manipulates because what? We can't see him. That's the best place to work, where we can't see him. And the only way we can see and understand and perceive the reality of what's going on in, this, in a kind of a spiritual realm, and we, don't, we can't like see the spiritual realm, but we can see the fruit of the spiritual realm come to life in our physical lives. And the only way we can perceive that fruit coming from a spiritual realm, whether it be good fruit or bad fruit, is if we're filled with the Spirit, with the discerning powers of God himself, and that comes, those discerning powers come, not just by being filled with the Spirit, but by being filled with the Spirit, we come to know the Word of God, and it is through the truth of God's Word that we discern good from evil. And we can see, as we discern, that the people are being deceived. They are not the problem, they are manipulated. Satan is the enemy. Now that... I say, because that has to be established before I say this. It is either our human compassion or it is a Christ-like, God-honoring, gospel-driven compassion that will cause us to feel bad for those who are being manipulated by Satan. Whether, they're, whether the manipulators know they're manipulating or they don't, we still feel bad for those people. We have like a, a compassionate heart towards them, like our heart breaks for their wickedness, our heart breaks for their souls, our heart wants to be right with them, our heart and mind wants to make them be right with God, we want to see things reconciled, we want to reach out to them and save them and love them and, you know, 
maintain relationship with them. And that's good. Having that kind of compassionate heart for people, that's exactly what Jesus, that's what, exactly what Jesus did. He saw the crowds, and what, did, what does Scripture say? Jesus had compassion on the lost people in the crowd. Like, to have compassion for people who are either manipulating or being manipulated or evil or wicked, whether believers or unbelievers, to have that compassion for them is a Christ-like attitude and behavior, and there's nothing wrong with it. The issue is that Scripture does give us clarity in several places that there is a point when the purity of the gospel that is seen in the holiness of the church gets compromised by those who refuse to follow the truth. And then Scripture teaches us that the purity of the gospel is just far too important to allow these kinds of unrepentant people to remain a part of the church. Which is why Paul says a little leaven leavens a whole lump. One bad apple spoils the whole bunch. Remove the leaven from the body for the sake of the purity of the gospel and the holiness of the church. So though compassion and love and grace is our go-to attitude and disposition towards people who are wicked and sinful, whether they're lost or believers or whatever, to, to have that compassionate love and, and desire to show them grace, that is a Christ-like attitude and a Christ-like heart. But then Scripture says, love and grace begins to look different and is enacted differently towards certain people based on particular behaviors. So God clarifies what love and grace should look like in certain circumstances. And in circumstances where evil people are a part of the church and refuse to repent of their wickedness and continue to manipulate and deceive and divide, when those things happen, Paul, and not just Paul, but Jesus in Matthew 18, Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, and Paul in Titus 3.10, and in 2 Thessalonians 3, and all these texts and a few others, Paul gives us clarity, God gives us clarity, that the way to love these people is to, and this is 1 Corinthians 5, hand them over to Satan, or as he says there also, to purge the evil person from among you, to hand them over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh, that their flesh may be ripped off and what is genuinely inside of them would be revealed. That's the concept of the flesh being ripped off. That as their flesh is ripped off by Satan, that's what Paul says, that the true nature of who they are inside would come forth. Like Jesus said, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It'll either be holiness inside and they'll be repentant and come back to the church for restoration. And that is why we show them love and grace by enforcing church discipline on them to remove their evil from the church to preserve the purity of the gospel and the expression of the holiness of the church. That's paramount for the church. We cannot approve of sin. Now, there's, I understand that every single person in this room is a sinner. That all of us sin. That you'll probably sin today. Okay? Like, but in no way, shape, or form would any of us in this room go, but it's okay to sin. Because it's not, and you know it's not. We're commanded not to. Regardless of what the sin is, we all agree that sin's not okay, but we also agree that Jesus paid for the sin. And then Paul says, should grace then, or should we continue to sin so that grace may abound? By no means. And so that doesn't in any way, shape, or form give us approval to continue to sin, 
But instead, by the power of the Spirit, being that we're now redeemed by Christ in, in the Holy Spirit, has regenerated our hearts, we can now serve Christ instead of serving sin. We can serve righteousness, or as Paul says in Romans 6, we're slaves to righteousness now, not slaves to sin. And so we all agree that sin is bad and we shouldn't do it. But that doesn't mean like, oh, I saw you sin. You just did, a, I saw a little bit of sin in your attitude. Church discipline, kick them out. Like that's, not the, that's not at all what scripture paints a picture like. I'm actually in the process right now of rewriting our constitution uh, specifically on church discipline and to have that ready for the congregation soon for, to, to discuss. And so, and then hopefully to approve and change the way that we do constitutionally the way we do church discipline in the church. And there's, there's a reason for that because the, the driving desire behind church discipline is primarily and most importantly the purity of the gospel as expressed in the holiness of the church. But for that individual believer who we have to remove in order to preserve that purity, love, compassion, and grace for that person doesn't end because they're not the problem. Satan is. So we pray for them, and we plead with them to repent. It's not that one sin gets you kicked out of church. It's the continuation, the del- or as Hebrews 10, 26 says, the, the going on, the continuation of deliberate sin with un- without repentance, refusing to accept that their continual behavior is wicked, And then the church has to remove them. And now love and grace is applied to them in a different way. We pray for them in the hopes that, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, when you remove that person from the church to rip their flesh off, that their flesh would be destroyed by Satan, the, the aim and the goal is that they would be repentant and humbled by the removal of their flesh, exposed before God, humbled before God, repentant of their sin, and brought back into fellowship with the church, restored back into righteousness and restored back into relationship with the body of Christ, and the entire church would celebrate the power of the gospel to restore a sinner who is a believer back into righteousness. And that would not emphasize that person's work. It would emphasize the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of the gospel, not just to save people, but to show us genuine, real, life-changing power that the gospel genuinely provides. That is the whole aim of this kind of perception. And, and and, And that's why I say, as we talk about that, this is why it's important that we understand that Satan is the enemy, the people are not. To look at the person who needs to be removed and go, oh, you're such a, uh, I don't know, whatever. That kind of disposition towards somebody because of their sin. Our hearts should be broken for them. And our love and compassion should turn into prayers and patience and understanding. And still, even there, there's rules about how we function with those things. But, but even, even in that, what, what Paul eventually is, is, is getting to here and this whole point is the purity of the gospel is just too important to let these false teachers run wild in the church you have to deal with it timothy and then what we'll see in verse six is you have to tell the people about it timothy so at this point in the text Paul will address exactly what these manipulative, conscience-seared false teachers are teaching in the church of Ephesus. So specifically, Paul says in verse 3, 
that they are those who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So there's a plethora of different ways in which these manipulators could, could deceive the church. And I'm sure we could find a, a hundred or a thousand different examples in church history of false doctrines and false teachings that have come into the church and deceived the church in different aspects of different doctrines that have been manipulated and changed and created and preached falsely in order to deceive people. Um, we could address all those. I mean, I've said this many times. The most attacked doctrine by heretics in church history is the deity and humanity of Jesus Christ, the nature of Christ himself. If you can destroy the nature of who Jesus is, make him either not man or make him not God, then you have destroyed the gospel altogether and completely. And so that's always been the one that's attacked most. But here, something different, something a little more subtle, something that doesn't really seem like that big of a deal, how we feel and interact with food and our views on marriage. And we're thinking, well, why are those, why would they attack those? Those really aren't that, I mean, those aren't, you know, how we inter interact or think or feel theologically about food or marriage doesn't determine whether we're saved or not. That's not a salvation issue. Why would they use that? Well, that's exactly the problem. They made it a salvation issue. In Ephesus, in Ephesus, the presence of these lying teachers was revealed in their like, manipulating marriage and food, taking these doctrines and then, and then teaching that you needed to believe what they're teaching about those things in order to be saved. And the reason they make those a salvation issue is because this form of false teaching is known as asceticism. Asceticism which we discussed back in Colossians because there were asceticists in Colossians as well. Asceticism holds that all physical matter is by nature evil and only things that are spiritual can be good. So God is good, but physical earth and humans and things that you can touch and see and interact with are, are all evil inherently by nature. Making food inherently evil to an asceticist and making marriage ultimately evil because it's an interaction between two physical beings so they perpetuate this false doctrine that to be saved one must avoid all physical pleasures and two of the greatest physical pleasures in human existence are the benefits of marriage and food right I mean, those are ultimately the two things that human beings look forward to the most. And so there is this concept of there's pleasure in, in a physical way, there's pleasure in this life. And the false doctrine is you can't have pleasure in this life, that would be evil, interacting with evil things and then calling it good. So you should abstain, is what they're teaching, abstain from foods and from marriage so that you have no pleasure in life. And this false gospel is probably taught, this, this asceticism is kind of pushed by maybe one of two groups. There's a group of Jewish religious people called the Essenes, and they perpetuated asceticism. And then there's just a common modern day first century perception of Greek teaching that was like asceticism as well, where the idea of physical pleasure was 
not okay. And so probably a mixture of those two cultures blending into people and then those people entering the church and teaching this false doctrine. You can't get married and you can't eat these foods. That's the only way to be saved. And Paul's like, not only is that a false gospel, not only are you adding works to Christ, but you are also destroying the benefits of the true gospel, which is ultimately your satisfaction and pleasure in God. And the physical reality that we live in, the world that we live in, and the physical pleasures and benefits of this life are created by God and are good and from God, because all good things come from God, that's James, and they're for us, for our pleasure, and the purpose of those physical pleasures are always to point us to Christ. So the picture of the gospel in the physical world is ruined if we destroy the idea of the physical pleasures in this, on this earth and in this life. Additionally, Scripture encourages singleness instead of marriage. It doesn't say you should be single it doesn't say you should be married. It says marriage is good. And then in Ephesians 5, Paul really digs into marriage. You can see the, 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 like the, the glory of marriage and how it reveals the gospel. But he also says in 1 Corinthians 7, I wish you were all like me, single, and you wouldn't be distracted by your spouse and you could serve, the God, whole, you could serve God wholeheartedly and freely without anything keeping you from traveling the world and sharing the gospel. And so... Paul says there's a benefit to singleness, and so there's that teaching on singleness, and then there's also Jesus teaching about fasting in Matthew 6 and in Matthew 9. So we see the, the Bible teaching singleness is okay, and not eating is okay, and so these heretics take those truths, and they'll manipulate them, and they'll say things like, doesn't even Jesus say you shouldn't eat food? If you're going to pray, you shouldn't eat. Jesus teaches don't eat. Jesus himself didn't eat for 40 days. Isn't the Lord your example? You guys should, should not eat. Abstain from food as much as possible, only for the sustenance to survive. And if you die, that's okay. You would just leave this physical presence, which is evil anyways. And, and don't get married. Doesn't Paul also teach that it's good? Not only good, but better. Better to be single, which he doesn't say it's better. Uh, but it's, it's better to be single, and so you shouldn't get married so you don't enjoy the pleasures of this world. God doesn't want you to have joy. It's not about you. It's about your sacrifice and you sacrificing the pleasures of this world for God. That sounds like a Christian message to me. Sacrifice the pleasures of this world to serve God. I would say that. I believe that that's true. But it's not true when you put it in the context of you can't enjoy the benefits and blessings that come from God in this physical world that he tells us we can enjoy and should enjoy. And Paul, it makes Paul upset because what Paul is realizing is this isn't just about whether you enjoy food or not. It's that the enjoyment of food and the enjoyment of marriage is meant to show us something greater. And if we don't get the pleasure of these earthly things and the worldly, not worldly pleasures, like sinful pleasures, but the pleasures that we get in this world, if we don't get to experience them, then we don't get the full picture of the gospel in every aspect and moment of life. That's what, that's what upsets Paul. And so these heretics are adding to the gospel. And like I said back in Galatians 2, earlier, in Galatians 2.21, if they add anything to the gospel, whether it's abstain from food or don't get married, adding that work to Christ, Paul says, then Christ died for no purpose. So it's a false gospel. So they teach that marriage is evil and they 
teach that food is bad, and, and, and then, but, but Paul doesn't teach that. Because Paul goes on in verses 4 through 5, and he says, for everything created by God is good. So that's the counter argument. Okay, their argument, the, the asceticist argument is all these things are physically bad. And then Paul says, but everything created, so created, now we have clarity that we're talking about physical things. Anything created by God is good. Well, what's created by God? Everything. When God created in Genesis, what does he say? Every day when he got done creating one thing to the next thing, God looked at it and said, it is good. So Paul clar- clarifies that avoiding God's gifts of food and marriage, that's a lie. And that gifts like food and marriage are given to us by God for our good and for his glory. The value of marriage is reiterated several times in scripture as marriage is one of the most profound expressions of the gospel that the church can even produce. Marriage not only has, it, well, it, just, just for clarity, The sole purpose of marriage is not reproduction, which some religious views will teach you. The the sole purpose, the primary purpose of marriage is not reproduction. Reproduction is God's blessing on the marriage covenant, and the blessing of the marriage covenant is children. And he tells us this in Psalm 127, where he says that children are a reward. But the purpose of marriage, ultimately, the greatest desire and purpose and function of marriage is to exalt and magnify Jesus Christ as our husband to the church or his bride. And the most satisfying way to magnify Christ in marriage, so listen to this, there's a little practical encouragement for you. The most satisfying way To magnify Christ in marriage is to have satisfaction and joy in your marriage. If you want to exalt Christ in your marriage, wives, enjoy, love, serve, give, sacrifice, and find any pleasure that your marriage can give you, take that pleasure and enjoy it to its fullest capacity. Husbands, same thing. Serve your wives, love your wives, or as Paul says in Ephesians 5, die for your wives and sanctify them by washing. This is Ephesians 5, 25 and 26 and 27. Sanctify them by washing them with the water of the word. And when you do, as Paul goes on to say, they will become holy and blameless. Husbands, your responsibility is the sanctification of your wife. And as you do that, you two will grow together, love together, learn together, and be satisfied together, and you will come together, and you will connect together, and affection and intimacy will flourish, and it will, that intimacy and that affection will show up in several different ways, both emotionally, mentally, spiritually, and physically. And in the fulfillment of your marriage where you're mentally, emotionally, physically, and spiritually satisfied with this person because the word of God is forming and transforming your marriage and your spouse is growing and you're growing and you start to go through trials and hard things and difficulties and and great things and fun things and wonderful blessings, good, bad, or whatever it might be, you're doing it together and you're growing together and you're being satisfied together and as you're growing, your togetherness is, is growing. And then you start to realize this person 
is my satisfaction in this life. I love this person with the entirety of my whole human self and my spiritual and physical and emotional and mental being is connected to this human being whom I have sacrificed everything for to serve and to love. And the, what I get back from them is the pleasures of this life at their greatest capacity. And then we stop there and go, isn't marriage great? And Jesus goes, yeah, but what you just described is the gospel. All of that pleasure and all of that relationship, all that is meant to point you to Christ, that he is the husband who satisfies the bride. Our purpose as the bride of Christ is that, and he as our husband, he's the head and we're the body. The whole purpose of the bride of Christ is to be satisfied in Christ, which is why you get to have marriages, so that you can be satisfied in this physical world and in this life. And in that satisfaction, as you're satisfied by your marriage, you'll go, oh, the point of this satisfaction with my spouse is for me to remember the greatness of the gospel of Jesus Christ that has saved me. And then you worship God and praise him and you get to enjoy him forever. That's so, so, so to, to teach that you shouldn't have a marriage, that you get to have pleasure and satisfaction and because it's evil is a disgustingly wicked teaching. And that's why Paul gets so worked up about it. That's why I get worked up about it. So, food, same thing. Food serves the purpose of our pleasure. I mean, it is God's gift to his people to reveal the spiritual truth that only God satisfies. So like food, I, mean, I don't know about you guys, maybe you're not like me, I'm assuming some of you are at least, but one of the greatest pleasures of life is that knowing that even if I just ate, there's going to be another time in probably a couple hours when I get to eat again. Like, that is something I just look forward to. When Holly and I go on vacations or, you know, when we go away, like, it's, all, it's always about the food, right? And it, maybe we got a little too, maybe we're a little too foodie about it, but it's always like, where do we want to eat next? And we were like, let's go to Gordon Ramsay's restaurant. Oh, let's go to this guy's restaurant. We saw him on TV. Let's, let's try this and that. It's all about the food. And food, I mean, let, America loves food, Right? And it's not just America, it's all over the world. Like, the, the, we consume food in mass amounts. And, and there's a reason we do. It's because it's so good. <laughs> like, I'm looking forward to after church because one of my favorite feelings throughout the entire week is being starving hungry after church and going home and eating and then laying down for four to six hours <laughs> because you ate too much, right? And that's the problem is like food can be pleasure and food can be satisfying, but it doesn't take long before it's not. I mean, maybe I might be sharing too much about myself here, but like when I look at a pizza, I'm like, I can eat that whole thing. And sometimes I do. And I'm like, that was satisfying. And about 30 minutes later, I'm like, shouldn't have done that. Shouldn't have done that. I don't feel good. I feel like exploding, you know. So like something that for a moment is just so satisfying and then all of a sudden that satisfaction turns its back on me and stabs me in the back and goes, ha ha, got you. Not very satisfied anymore because we abuse these God-given gifts with sin. And you can apply that to marriage too or you can abuse the pleasures of marriage 
and it becomes sin and it ruins things for you. But we have this constant need to eat several times a day and that is God's good grace toward us to create us as beings who are dependent on being fed. It's God's grace that he would make us people who, who, who have metabolism that digests food within a certain amount of time where we need probably at least, or as you could say normally, three meals a day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and that, the, that what we experience in, the, in those times of hunger that we satisfy with food is that God is showing us that we are hungry and in need of being fed spiritually. So, it's a reality, food is a reality, that is a spiritual lesson for us about how dependent we are spiritually to be fed by God's word. So we're hungry all the time because we'd say, well, our bodies need the sustenance and that's why we're hungry. Well, that's true, but God created us that way so that we would always be reminded, I'm dependent on food and if I don't get it, I will die. And then God provides, and we eat, and we don't die, and instead of dying, we're what? Satisfied. And God goes, that's for me, to remind you that I'm the satisfier. This is why Psalm 34, 8 says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Like, consume him, and you will be satisfied. In Jeremiah 15, 16, one of my favorite Bible verses, your words were found and I ate them. He's speaking figuratively, FYI. Your words were found, and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. And the Lord shows us his goodness through his word. Jesus is God's goodness. We see this in Revelation 19, 13. The name by which Jesus is called is the word of God. And so God speaks to us through Jesus, and Jesus is the word, John 1, 1. And so Really, by following the word of God, we're following Christ. And the word of God teaches us that food was created for our enjoyment as well as to reveal to us our absolute dependence on God for satisfaction and fulfillment. And to reject these truths and to manipulate these truths, sort of twist the reality of who God is and how he interacts with us and blesses us for our enjoyment in him is ultimately a false gospel. To twist that and change it, that's false. And the gospel is the good news that we get God and that we get him forever and that we get joy and pleasure in him forever. Psalm 16, 11. In your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. To teach that we should avoid pleasure and joy in the physical sense is to teach a false gospel as the gospel of Christ is meant to satisfy us in Christ as God's primary means to magnify and exalt himself in us. We need physical, real experiences with real life, real world things that bring us satisfaction, joy, and pleasure. We need those things to be reminded of the truth. And God gives us those things to remind us of the truth that he is the only thing that will ultimately, throughout eternity, satisfy. You can eat, but you're going to be hungry in two hours. You can get married, but your spouse is going to die one day. You can go to a movie and enjoy yourself, but it'll end. You can play a game, but the game ends. 
can have leisure time, but the leisure time ends. Everything begins and everything ends, and satisfaction comes to a halt in life, and we have to wait for another moment when it happens. And all that is to remind us of the goodness of God's grace that through the gospel of Jesus Christ, he will eternally, without end, forever satisfy us with a pleasure and a joy that your mind and your heart have never conceived of. Not even began, you, you haven't even began to, to even get a glimpse of the greatness of the pleasure and joy that you will experience in the presence of God. And if you take a moment to think about heaven and you think to yourself, oh, I can't wait to get to heaven and I'll get to see people I love and friends that I have and we'll get to play games and maybe we'll get to build things. Will we be naked? I don't know. Anyways, like, I can't wait to find out all the pleasures and joys of heaven and we're going to run around and we're going to have, the trees are going to be perfect. There'll be no sin, no tears, no sadness. It'll be just wonderful. And what Psalm 73, 25 tells us says, whom have I in heaven but you? None of that stuff matters in heaven. That's not where your joy is going to be. You're not going to be running around going, I love these brand new legs and all oh, those trees are so beautiful. Look at the flowers. I've never seen flowers like that in my life. Oh, my grandma's here. Grandma! You know, like that's not what heaven's going to be about. You're going to see Christ and you're going to go, I got nothing. And you are going to be overwhelmed with a joy and a pleasure and a satisfaction that your current physical and spiritual self cannot manage. The pleasure of God in Christ that will be revealed to us eternally is a pleasure that if you knew it right now, you would die. That's why God says no man can see God and live. The glory of God if viewed right now by your human, sinful, broken self that is tainted by a sin nature cannot handle the thought, the appearance, or the perception of God's truest glory. Which is why we need resurrection bodies, new bodies that are perfect and pure and without sin. So that when we enter the presence of God, we are going to still, even with new bodies that can handle the glory of God, we are still going to be in awe forever. We don't, we don't want people getting saved so they can run away from hell. We want people to be saved because they see Christ for the beauty and magnificence and glory that he is. We want people running to Jesus. He's their pleasure. He's their satisfaction. He is the greatest joy. He is what we're looking forward to. He is what we're chasing after. He is what we want. I want him in this life. I want him in that life. And I can't wait for this life to be over so that I can have him forever in that life. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, I think, somewhere in there, Paul says that, I'm just going to read it. <laughs> I was about to paraphrase it, and I'm like, I'm going to massacre this. Okay. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. He who is able to do far more, not just more, not just a little more, and not far more, and far more abundantly. So he's already given us a description of a concept that is beyond what you can imagine. Far more abundantly than all, that means anything, that you can ask or think. So if you try to visualize or contain in your human brain your, uh, some sort of experience or perception about the glory of God and the ultimate satisfaction and pleasure that his presence will bring to you in eternity, you can't. You can't do it. 
which is why we still sin. Because our sin nature keeps us from seeing the magnitude of God's glory. And because we can't see him for who he truly is, we're okay with sin. When we can't, we can't see his holiness. So glory is the manifestation of God's holiness. So we don't, if we don't perceive God's holiness, if we don't know or theologically or biblically understand the greatness of God's holiness and what his holiness really is like, the pure perfection of who God is, and we see his standards for holiness in Scripture, if we don't perceive those things, then we're not going to care about his glory. And we have a hard time really grasping the full picture of what holiness is because of our sin nature, and therefore we can't really grasp the fullness of his glory. And since we can't really grasp the fullness of his glory, we really can't grasp the fullness of the pleasure of being in his glory. And Jesus doesn't talk about heaven that much because we can't, we can't understand it. It, it, it will be a reality that you, it'll be a reality, it'll be physical. You know, we're not going to live forever in heaven, just to clarify that reality too, that truth. We don't go to heaven, right? We go to a new earth. At the end of time, when Christ returns, he will destroy this one and create a new earth, and we will live on a new earth. I mean, I'm assuming, I don't know, I'm assuming he'll have like trees and dirt, and so I don't know, maybe he'll create something different than dirt. I don't know. But the reality is it will be a new earth, a perfected earth with perfected people living on it. That's the promise. And in that new, on that new earth, Christ will be king. And the, the pleasure of serving the king will be, is unimaginable to you right now. And that's, and that's why Paul says, that's your hope. In Romans 8, he says, that's your hope. The, the, the way I just described, all the pleasure of being eternally satisfied in the presence of God, that's your hope. And Paul says, if hope was seen, it would no longer be hope. He says, but since we cannot see it, hope is now faith. So faith ensures our hope. So by faith in Christ... We have this assurance of our hope that we will spend eternity with him forever in a joy and in a pleasure that we cannot conceive of in this life. Amen. And by faith, that's our hope. And it takes faith because if I can't see what that joy is like, if I can't know right now what that joy is like, if I can't believe or perceive or understand what that pleasure of being in the presence of God is like, then why would I have hope in it? Because faith makes me. Because I, by faith I read the word of God and it says that's what you get with me forever. And I go, I don't understand it, but I believe it. And God goes, well, I know you don't understand it fully, but here, let me give you a glimpse and a taste of what it'll be like. Here's food. Here's marriage. You ever take a, a, a you ever get like a big glass of ice water after like working outside for four hours in the hot summer and you come inside and you slam that big glass of ice water? It is so satisfying. God's like, here's water. Here's all the pleasures of the world that I want you to experience just so you get a taste, a sliver of a taste and a glimpse of what it will be like to spend eternity with me. And I'm going to make your ex existence and your reality enjoy those pleasures now to point you to me, but also I'm going to restrict you from even perceiving the unfathomably supreme greatness of being in his presence forever. And so, church, enjoy your food, enjoy your lunch, 
I hope that as you enjoy your marriage and enjoy the pleasures of this life, that you would see that this is not just about those things. This is about Christ. This is about the gospel. This is why Paul says that these things are made holy by, by the word and by prayer because it's not some liturgical like sprinkle holy water on it type thing and then, then you can eat it and it's made good. No, the point is that this is why we pray before we eat. Our prayer before we eat is this isn't about the food. This is about God. This is about the provider providing and the people are worshiping the, cre- the creature rather than the creator and, st- and, and then they're getting false pleasures. People worship food and they worship people and they worship things instead of Christ. And then they fall short of true pleasure. We must recognize that not only are these things a gift from God, that all good gifts come from God, but that they also serve a greater purpose to show us the different truths about the nature and character of God so that we would not just enjoy the gift, but that we would worship, serve, love, and enjoy forever the pleasure and satisfaction of the giver. Let's pray. Lord, you are our joy and satisfaction. We really can't fathom it. Um, but oh, you show us yourself in so many ways. And just we just ask that you would continue to reveal yourself to us daily in every little nuance of life. And that we would see those little things in life other big things or little things that we'd see all of them in life and, and that we would recognize like this is your way of showing me you. So Lord, give me pleasure and satisfaction in you through this thing. Give us that kind of mentality, Lord. Give us that kind of reminder constantly so that we would always, always, always be living for the gospel of Jesus and not just for the physical pleasures of this world that will eventually sear our consciences and our hearts against you. So satisfy us in Christ as you satisfy us in this life. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.